We should have Solomon online to give us our first reading. Our first reading is taken from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. Imitating Christ's humility. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee shall bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work on your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're going to have our second reading from Solomon. Our second reading is from Luke 6, verses 43 to 45. A tree and its fruit. No good tree bears bad fruit. Not again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Thank you, Solomon, for the readings this morning. We're going to have Nigel come up for the sermon. Thank you, Nigel. 
Good morning, and can I add my welcome to you all? It's nice to see you all, having been away for a good few weeks, having rest and recuperation, supposedly, but we've moved in the middle of that, so I'm now sort of like going, oh my gosh. <laughs> so I'm trying to start off with that. Good morning, everybody. Isn't it wonderful? I've been um, pondering while I was sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, all these hymns are really interesting this morning. They're all about ascension. And then I went, oh, you idiot. <laughs> you could tell I'm tired. <laughs> um, and of course, this Sunday is the first Sunday after ascension. And you know, we were, you know, I, haven't, I, I didn't plan it, okay? I'm going to be honest. I didn't plan it. But they go very well with the passage that was set. Just going to have a quick think about the passage from Luke's gospel. Uh, Jesus in his early part of his ministry has already disquieted the Pharisees and has now chosen his disciples, those ones that he's going to encourage and enable to lead the church on, to lead the mission on after he has died. He begins to teach them. And in this passage in Luke, it's what we call the Sermon on the Plain. He speaks of love, of judgmentalism. He then speaks the words that we had read to us about the good trees and good fruit, bad trees and bad fruit. And I always remember that word, verse, and you buy their fruits, you shall know them. Yeah? I, that's a very key verse. By their fruits, you shall know them. Of course, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and all those religious people who have just been challenging him and asking him silly questions about the Sabbath and marriage and all these sort of things. And he says to the disciples, by their fruits, you shall know them. So now you might think, ah, that's why we've got the pictures. Have you seen the pictures? Yeah? Right? Easy one to start off with. What is this? Where does it come from? No, it, came, it actually came from a coffee shop this morning, okay? Don't be clever, right? <laughs> it comes off an apple tree, yeah. Banana. Come on, now I'm going to test you now. What does this come off? A banana plant, not a tree. It's a shrub. It's a herb. It's not a tree. But I just, you know, just put that out there. So on your pictures, as you can see them, there are, sorry, let me just get my name of the moon, four images. Does anybody know what the first one is? Figs? Any advance on figs? It's actually the fruit of a potato. It's actually the fruit of a potato. The second one? Come on, Tim. Cashew nuts. Well done. Brilliant. The third one? Yeah, what? 
It's coffee, yes. Coffee. It's not coffee, but it's... It. <laughs> it's... And the bottom one. Might be a bit more obscure. It's an everyday thing in England. And, well, Britain, I'll be careful. <laughs> Sorry? No? Oh, much more everyday than that. Sorry, I have to apologize. I haven't got the images to show you. So is that one? That one? That's the coffee one. That one, any idea what that one might be? You most probably got up this morning, put the kettle on, and had... Yes, it's the fruit of the tea plant. I was being difficult, yeah? Things we have seen, things we haven't seen. But by their fruit, you shall know them. Sometimes we don't understand what the fruits look like, do we? That's why I put the top one on, because it looks very much like a tomato. It comes off a flower that's very tomato-like. I haven't checked the genus of the potato to see whether it's related to the tomato, because it has a... Uh, you, you, you group flower, you group plants by their flower, not by anything else. There you go. But actually, the passage that uh, we are supposed to be looking at is from Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, the great Christological hymn that speaks of the person and the work of Jesus, the Messiah and Lord. It is written to the church at Philippi. Paul had had a long and fruitful relationship with that church. The the in, then it's Philippi in Macedonia, not Caesarea Philippi, not Philippi top of Israel. This is in Macedonia. Do you remember those stories? Checking your Sunday school and uh, biblical knowledge. So Paul's second missionary journey, stuck, not able to go anywhere, trying to go somewhere in Asia Minor, finding it very difficult, and suddenly he has a dream to come over to Macedonia to help us. So he goes to Macedonia, he travels a little bit around Asia Minor, around, around the Macedonian area, and he ends up at Philippi. He preaches, he meets Lydia, the seller of purple cloth. He upsets the authorities by casting out the demon of the girl who was producing the future and saying horrible things about, and he ends up in prison. In prison, after a flogging, him and his companions start singing hymns. The prison doors miraculously open. The jailer tries to kill himself. Paul stops him. They go to the jailer's house. They have meal. They come back. There is. They've set free, and then they leave Philippi and go off to continue the mission somewhere else because they were at risk. Sometime later, Paul is in prison, probably in Rome, but we don't know. There's lots of different bits and pieces where Paul is in prison and he's writing letters, and some people think that this book is a, an amalgamation of all his letters he wrote in, in prison to the church at Philippi. But it's more probably he was in Rome. 
right towards the end of his life. And he writes to them about the church's nature and its nurture and their current situation. Paul is not aggrieved by this church. In fact, he's, he, he's glowing about it. He's glowing about how nice they've been to him. He's happy to, see, to say about how much support they've shown him, the mission, his fellow missionaries, that this church was a generous church, a church who had supported people Paul had sent to them and sent them back with gifts. But he's also a little downcast because he's afraid that he might never see them again. He wants to accomplish more for the mission of Christ. But he's afraid that he might not see them. So the letter is a thank you, an encouragement, and a challenge for the future. Chapter 1 ends with Paul pleading with them to follow his example of patience in suffering and to make his joy complete by standing firm in the faith they had believed in. To enable them to stand firm, he encourages them by his testimony. Now, I'm not sure, and I don't know whether you are, that the testimony of someone suffering locked in prison, you know, is something that would encourage me too much. It would be a little bit um, worrying that what he's saying is, you could be like me too. Come and join me. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. But Paul believes, therefore, he presses on with the idea that he himself and the church are following the truth, and this will lead to gain. For me to live is Christ. To die is game. So regardless of the situation that Paul finds himself in, the difficulties, the trouble, the torment, he's looking forward to what he, he has and what he's experienced of Jesus, the Lord, and the Savior. Paul is convinced of the truth of the gospel. The same gospel that these community, this community had considered their faith and their relationship with Jesus and the Godhead. So at the beginning of chapter two, he begins to say to them, do you remember, remember your relationship with Christ. If there is any comfort, any joy, any love. Remember those rewards of love that you've had from the Godhead, those experiences that you've had, those emotions that you felt. Remember the fellowship of the Spirit. Life is difficult. Remember, one of my favorite passages of all time comes from Philippians. A bit later on, whatever is good, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, think on these things. But then he says, not just about God, but remember the vision that you had. Remember that you should be true to each other. Remember to love one another. And we know 
if we look around and we look at ourselves, that to love one another and to be true to one another and to be kind to one another can be quite difficult sometimes in the church, can't it? You can say yes. I'm not going to judge you. Because we all want, we're all individuals or humans. We have failings, we have, but we are called to remember and to be true and to love one another. And then a little bit more encouragement. Paul begins to talk about Jesus. That high Christology of a hymn, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God anything to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And we could spend weeks, months, unpacking this passage. We're not going to. I've got 20 minutes and I've used 10 already, okay? But this is an extremely high Christology. It's a hymn of the early church. Possibly, as Baptist one like this, a creed. But I'm no Greek scholar, and I have been told it is better in the original. With it has well-worked phrases at that point, more to the height of Christology than we can see in the English. But you know, as a Welshman, I've always been told English is a poor language. <laughs> It has contrast of the nature and the form, not only in his penship, but in the words that is that being used. The author goes on to say that Jesus was in the form of God. There are two, I research, right? Let me just tell you, this is research. Two Greek words for the form, morph and schema. But in English, they have to be both translated as form. Because there is no English equivalent. But they do not mean the same thing. Morph, as in the little character on how you, know, you, you remember him, do you? Morph is the essential form, which never alters. Schema is the outward form, which changes over time. For instance, the morph of any human being is the humanity, and that never changes. But the schema is continually changing. A baby, a child, a youth, middle age, elderly, I think I'm middle-aged at the moment. Okay. Next year might be different. But we all have the morph, humanity. But the outward schema changes. The word, author, the word the author uses for Jesus being in the form of God is that he's in the morph of God. He is the exact representation of God. 
That is to say, he's unchangeable. Being, his being is divine. However, his outward schema might alter. Do you remember, he was born as a baby, yeah? You remember that he grew into an adult and his form was scarred by the cross. And then it says that he did not grasp or snatch his equality. He did not run after his equality with God. He gave it up. He let it go. We're doing a lot of packing and unpacking in our house at the moment because we've moved into a new home. We've had loads of boxes and we've gone through them and we've looked at them and we've gone, oh, stick that one up the attic, put that one over there. We haven't got rid of much. We're trying to hold on to things. And uh, I'm glad Dermot doesn't listen to these sermons, okay? We've had a bag of shirts that has been hanging around for over 10 years. Dermot's body shape has changed dramatically. Sorry, Dermot. I do love you. Um, but you know, he's kept these shirts because they're very nice ones, expensive ones, but they're like you know, slim fit. And even if either of us were to get to the point where we were a lot less weighty than we are now, they still wouldn't fit us. That's the secret. But yesterday we had a miracle. It was, oh, these won't fit me anymore. <laughs> Realization. Sometimes we want to grasp and hold on to things that make us feel good, to things that make us important, to things that give us kudos. You know, these are all quite expensive shirts. And yet, the image of Jesus is that he's not hanging on to any of this. He's given it up to become humble, to become human, to become obedient. And then towards the end, this Christology, which is the heights, where it says that he becomes Lord and Savior and Master. And where this is being written to is a Roman, a strong Roman colony where Caesar is Lord, where Caesar is Savior, where Caesar is in control. And this church is being told that their Jesus, this man from Nazareth, this humble, divine human, is their Lord and Savior and Master. And life is difficult for them. And they are asked to believe and to move and to act because of that. This Christology puts them at odds with their neighbors and their friends and their families. But it comes to an abrupt end 
It finishes. With that height of glory, it stops. And then Paul just moves on quite easily and goes, now you, you lot, live out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I'm going, I want a bit more. I want a bit more to encourage me. No, no, no. This is the truth. This is the knowledge. This is the understanding of who Jesus is, who has gone from the heights, come down to the lowest, died for you, gone back up into heaven. Essentially, hey, I mentioned it. Yay. And is your Lord and Master. Live out your own salvation. I don't want to say that we have to work for salvation. I've always had, it's like working something out. The answer is there. You've just got to keep on being who you're being. Keep on remembering to love and to cherish and to care and to be humble and to be kind and to be thoughtful. This morning on Twitter, Steve Chalk said, being kind to people reduces their blood pressure. Being kind to people reduces their heart rate. Being kind to people makes them feel warm and nice. And sometimes I'm thinking, I don't want to be kind. (laughs) I don't want to be nice. But we are called to do this. If we remember who our Savior is, who, was, who became incarnate so that we might receive the love of God, then we should be imitating him and be incarnations of his nature and his nurture in our world so that other people might receive that love of God to be like him. I do remember you know, what that passage, the Ascension passage, as I was sitting there, that you know, when he ascended into heaven, he gave gifts of fruits to men. It's all linking in. <laughs> when I was a, a young man, that was a longish time ago, but not as long as for some of you. We, um, we had someone come to preach to us on Acts chapter 11, preaching about the church in Antioch. And that was the place where believers, followers of the way, were first called Christians. And here's the challenge to us as a group of young people, it was a young people's meeting, was uh, When was the last time someone who didn't know you called you a Christian? When was the last time that the evidence of your life and the evidence of of your faith challenged other people to see you as a Christian? And it's always scared me. 
Because sometimes I'm not very Christ-like. Sometimes. I don't remember. I don't remember my relationship with Christ. I don't remember the rewards of the love that God has bestowed upon me freely. I don't remember the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with me, walking with me throughout the day. And what's worse, sometimes, and if I'm being honest, more often than not, I don't remember to be true to the vision that God has called me to. Or to remember to be true and kind to one another. And I don't remember to love each other. I'm grateful that I have a God who is full of grace and mercy and truth. I'm grateful that God has given us and enabled us to have gifts and talents and experience his love and his generosity. I'm grateful because sometimes I don't always get it. I want us to think as a fellowship and as individuals, how we show true, true vision, true kindness, true love to one another. So the people walking past when we're having our lunch, when we're having our, uh, our walks, we'll be able to say, there goes a group of Christians. There goes people who follow Jesus. We're going to continue our worship in a few moments after we've sat quietly with the hymn, May the Mind of Christ My Saviour. Dear Father God, it saddens our hearts to see the great su suffering of your beloved children in the world. We bring to mind all those in our locality who find themselves in a hard place. We especially think of those who are suffering in Texas, who have lost their children. Lord, come breathe on these people by your Holy Spirit and bring great love, hope and joy through us, through us in our church. Help us to minister to, to others in the strength of your spirit and to work in unity together. May we shine your glorious light into the darkness. Lord, it disturbs us when we see world leaders embracing division instead of unity, persuading wealth instead of justice and concealing lies instead of speaking the truth. Please gather us to lift those in significant leadership to you. Come guide their thoughts, cover their actions and renew their minds. Protect them from the influence of the realms of darkness and sweep away any corruption. We pray that you would lay out your new paths of righteousness in troubled nations and land. Father, it is disturbing to see the difference between rich and poor. We lift all those in poverty to you. 
Come and bring miracles of provision, healing, and restoration. Speak into our lives so that we might play our part in changing the world. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.